Welcome to Pod Save America. I'm John Favreau. I'm Tommy Vitor. On today's show, Joe Manchin fucks over the planet while Democrats try to make progress without him. And former Republican strategist Tim Miller is here to discuss his new book about why so many of his friends and colleagues went full MAGA. You're not even going to address who's not here today? The person who's not here. <laughs> honestly forgot for a second. <laughs> John Lovett's not John feeling Lovett's well. John not here. John Lovett is, 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 is feeling ill. Is feeling ill. So he is not here today. He has a cold. He's fine. But pray for him. Exactly. Also, come see us on tour. We are hitting the road later this week and next month. Later this week, we're going to be in Seattle and Portland. Uh, In August, we'll be in Nashville and Atlanta. Tickets are selling fast. So go grab some at crooked.com slash events and come say hi. We'd love to see you in person. Uh, All right, let's get to the news. A global heat wave has led to record-breaking temperatures across North America, Asia, and especially Europe, where the intense heat has caused death, drought, and wildfires. But here in the United States, President Biden's plan to fight climate change was defeated on Thursday by Joe Manchin, the West Virginia millionaire who became rich from his family's coal business and has taken more campaign donations from the oil and gas industry than any other senator. How about that? Hmm. After yet another round of negotiations where Senate Democrats were basically willing to give Manchin whatever he wanted on climate, uh, the wealthy coal baron said he couldn't support any tax or energy provisions until at least September because he wants to see if inflation improves by then. That's the latest excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, Manchin has reportedly told Chuck Schumer that he would support a reconciliation bill that allows Medicare to negotiate for cheaper prescription drugs and extends more generous Affordable Care Act subsidies for two more years. So Democrats will try to get that bill on Joe Biden's desk before the August recess. Tommy, what do you think happened here? Why did these uh, negotiations fall apart between this time between Joe Manchin and Chuck Schumer for like the hundredth time in two years? Maybe we divide this into what Manchin and Schumer say happened, and then later we get to what we think happened. Great. Because for me, they're not the same. Yeah, no, me me neither. So that's Um, that's great. Good place to start. Yeah. So Manchin claimed that the latest inflation numbers, the 9.1% increase in consumer price index in June, has upset him. And he's decided that he can't support a package that includes climate change uh, spending or tax increases. This gets even more confusing as you try to follow it because days earlier, Manchin had supported a plan to raise taxes on the rich by closing certain kinds of tax loopholes to ensure that Medicare is solvent. But as always, you know, finding consistency here is probably not a, a good use of our time. The Washington Post also reported that Manchin told a group of business leaders that he would support raising money to go towards deficit reduction. So he's very focused on deficit reduction these days. The, the, the thing that's so infuriating about this, John, is that all the smart economists, not us, smart economists, say that, that Build Back Better and these climate provisions uh, would not lead to inflation because we're talking about climate spending over a decade and they're all offset by tax increases, right? So none of this, none of what he's saying, none of this logically makes sense. It's okay to be concerned about inflation. It's sure you're concerned about the deficit, but he's taking actions that don't make sense given those concerns. And that is what makes this conversation so infuriating. I mean, Manchin and and Josh Gottheimer in the House and a few other centrist Democrats have been making noise about this for a week now, about these tax increases on the wealthiest individuals, on the biggest corporations, because what, like, this this is just getting rid of the Trump tax cuts because they're worried about inflation. They're worried about, like, a a, a big corporation or a a, a rich person, like, a a tax increase that's going to hit them. Raising taxes won't lead to inflation. You'll spend less because you got taxed more. Like, and we're worried about those people having a tough time with price increases. That that's who we're worried about. Right. It's fucking ridiculous. So that's what they. So that's what Manchin says happened. Yeah, well, and, I, and he's basically saying too, like I didn't walk away from it because I'll. We could still do this deal maybe in September if the inflation numbers are better by September. 
he wanted to once again kick it down the road a few more months. But I think at this time, Chuck Schumer and Joe Biden were like, no more. We're not going to wait around to September and then have you pull the fucking football away again in September. And then that's it. Yeah. What I think is that Joe Manchin understands that uh, successful propaganda doesn't mean convincing you that black is white or up is down. It means confusing you to the point where you lose your mind. And that is what's happened here over the course of many years. Trying to parse this man's words or follow his various positions is impossible because they are truly incoherent. And I think that incoherence was a strategy in service of slowly strangling this bill for whatever reason, because he's from a fossil fuel state, a coal state, and he never wanted it to pass because he doesn't want the fossil fuel economy replaced by climate change. Maybe it's because he's hearing from lobbyists or big donors, or maybe it's his own financial interest. I don't think he ever wanted this climate change language to pass. I think he has strung us all along, and now here we are. In fact, there are people at the White House who have said uh, that Manchin tells Joe Biden and every Democratic senator exactly what they want to hear, and then he changes his mind when he talks to the staff. And he changes his mind whenever he talks to some lobbyists and he meets with the lobbyists. He's very impressionable, Joe Manchin. And he has been looking, and I've also heard that he's been looking this whole time for an excuse um, to not do this deal that absolves him of responsibility, right? So he can blame it on inflation. He can blame it on progressives for asking too much. He can blame it on the White House for releasing a statement that includes his name, right? That press release that hurts his feelings, right? He wants to be able to say no to the deal, but he doesn't want to be at fault for it. So he wants to look for somewhere else to blame or someone else to blame. He got everything he fucking asked for in these latest negotiations in climate. Schumer basically said, first of all, he got rid of the clean energy standard in the last round of negotiations. In this round, he got oil and gas production included. He got the electric vehicle credits out. He changed the direct payments for energy companies to tax incentives for clean energy companies. Like he got everything. And then what happened is because Schumer kept saying yes to everything, he's like, oh, fuck, I just got everything I wanted. Now I'm going to have to say yes. So he needed a new excuse. Yep. It's bullshit. It's absolutely bullshit. Like, do you think there was anything Biden or Schumer or any other Democrat could have or should have done differently to get a better outcome here? The honest answer is I don't know. I mean, I don't know if Joe Biden could have had some heart to heart or a negotiation earlier or done something to bring Manchin around. I do think that Schumer did not play the expectations game well for all of us because he knew where Manchin's red lines were for a long time while progressives uh, were pushing for more and more to be in the early versions of Build Back Better. Now, of course, Joe Manchin abandoned this secret letter he had written to Chuck Schumer and all the red lines he didn't had in there. But here's where I ultimately land. I think Joe Manchin did what he felt was in his political interests. And you know what? It worked. Joe Manchin's approval rating in the first quarter of 2021 in West Virginia was 40%. In early 2022, Morning Consult found him at 57% approval in West Virginia. The increase came from Republicans and independents, and he protected fossil fuels in the state. So Joe Manchin did what was helpful for his narrow political interests. So the joke's on us. You're right, we're debating, like, is he stupid? Is he craven? He's a hack politician who I think wants to get elected again, wants to run again. And I am skeptical that any amount of browbeating from the White House or Schumer or progressives could have changed his mind because he knows that in West Virginia, being seen as beating up on Democrats is good politics for him. And he cares more about his future than the planet's. Yeah, you're exactly right. You start with the question, how do you get reelected in a Trump plus 50 state? 
Yeah, not easy. <laughs> right? Uh, in 2024. And the answer is everything that we've seen from Joe Manchin yeah. <laughs> over the last two years. That's the answer that he gave. No, pick you, pick you, fights with liberals. You're exactly right. Picking fights with liberals. It's like you could have you could send a thousand progressives to West Virginia to pick it outside of his office. That's only going to help him more with voters in West Virginia. There aren't enough progressives in West Virginia. There aren't enough Democrats in West Virginia. And that's what we got. So now the question is. Can I tell you one silver lining? Yeah, yeah, I, sure. I was looking back. Um, I was listening to, to Dave Roberts' podcast. He was talking with some climate activists. It is worth noting that the Democratic Party as a whole has improved enormously on climate. In 2009, the cap-and-trade bill that passed uh, the House got something like 40 no votes from Democrats. This time, basically every elected Democrat in Congress was for the climate change provisions in Build Back Better except Manchin that went much, much, much further than in 2009. So I do think that climate activists are doing the right thing. They're winning. Sunrise, like all these groups out there who have been kicking ass and focusing on this and centering climate in Democratic campaigns are doing the right thing. It's just like we had a razor thin margin and the one guy we needed represented a coal state and it sucks. Just like we don't have a pro-choice majority in the Senate because of Manchin and, and yeah. the, in the filibuster thing, a pro-choice anti-filibuster majority, we don't have a pro-climate majority either because Joe Manchin is not on the fucking team. Yeah. And the only way to deal with that is to make sure we elect John Fetterman and a Democrat in Wisconsin and re-elect the Democratic Senate, re-elect the Democratic House, and then you have a pro-climate majority in, this, in, in, the, uh, in Congress. That's, mm-hmm. that's the only way to make sure that Joe Manchin's voice doesn't count as much as it's counting right now. Meanwhile, it's like 113 degrees in Texas and like Texas doesn't have a power grid that functions, but yeah, things are going great. Um, So now the question then is what else can the Biden administration do about climate change on its own? Uh, And and what what about states with Democratic governors and legislatures? So, I mean, the the federal government buys a lot of stuff. uh, And one thing that activists would like to see the White House do is use that purchasing power to incentivize industries that we need. So you buy a lot of vehicles, you buy electric cars, you buy other zero emission vehicles, which incentivizes growth in the entire industry. I think that's something they will do. Uh, Biden could ban drilling on new federal lands and in federal waters. They could phase out the U.S. government's financing of fossil fuel projects. And then you could also lean on international organizations like the IMF or the World Bank to try to do the same. They could just do more conservation of land. Generally, uh, a lot of climate groups want Biden to declare a national climate emergency, which would unlock some authorities could direct uh, the EPA to establish limits on the emissions of greenhouse gases. Some people want him to use the Defense Production Act to increase manufacturing of clean energy vehicles. Now, the, the challenge with all of these ideas is that the courts are now filled to the brim with 24-year-old Trump lackey judges, right? And we have a Supreme Court that just last week ruled to make it harder for the EPA to regulate carbon emissions without authorization for Congress. So there's the chance a lot of this stuff will get challenged immediately in court and could get struck down. But I don't know. The argument for and against trying, I would have to ask some sort of legal expert or climate expert. Yeah. And, and, you know, and Dan talked to Amy Westervelt of Crooked Media's Hot Take Pod about this when the EPA decision came down from the Supreme Court. And she actually said it was not as horrible as she thought it was going to be worse and they still retain the epa still retains some authority to to limit greenhouse gas emissions um i don't know if you saw the the tweet thread from sheldon whitehouse the democratic senator from rhode island who's a big climate hawk how dare you ask if i saw sheldon whitehouse's (laughs) tweet thread of course i did how could i miss the sheldon whitehouse (laughs) twitter thread well particularly because he in the in the twitter thread he advocated for an executive branch quote climate beast mode (laughs) 
I'm sorry, what? <laughs> so what does that mean? he just did a whole tweet thread of all the executive actions that Biden can take and he wants he's called it climate beast mode. Okay. And that it's it's a lot of the it's basically everything you just said, Tommy, plus a rule that would force energy producers to account for greenhouse gas emissions as a cost of doing business, so it puts a carbon price, and a rule that requires major polluters to use technology to capture carbon dioxide emissions and impose stronger pollution controls on cars, light trucks, and heavy duty vehicles. Obama did uh, cars and light trucks uh, back in the Obama administration. You could go further than that. That now you can make even even more energy efficient, and then for the first time, do a rule on heavy duty vehicles as well. Yeah, you just Marshawn Lynch that shit. Why not? It's just climate beast mode. How I like it. Sheldon Whitehouse. Um, so that's climate. Um, I guess what we're left with is this reconciliation bill, which went from Build Back Better to oh, and states. What states can? Do. Oh, I'm sorry, states. Yeah, you know, a lot of states are taking aggressive climate action. We live in California. Luckily, they've done a lot of great work. There's a statewide cap and trade program. California has uh, mandated carbon-free electricity by 2045. There's incentive for purchasing electric vehicles. So, you know, the states are doing great work. Basically, you know, there's some like 22 dozen some odd states have signed this climate compact to do, uh, to try to basically stay in the Paris Climate Accord. So things are happening on a state level. I think the concern is what if we lose those governorships? What if the court... Uh, strikes down, you know, creates a ruling that is even more radical and direct and and inhibits their capacity to take action on climate? What if Congress does something, if Republicans gain control of uh, everything in 2024? Like, that's the longer-term concern. That's right. That's right. Um, All right, so that's on climate. Um, What we're left with is after starting with this this Build Back Better bill, uh, we're left with health care and prescription drug provisions. Um, How big of a deal are these provisions in this smaller reconciliation bill? So I've not seen all the details on the drug bill. It seems like it would let Medicare negotiate directly with drug makers over the price of some of the most expensive prescription drugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, It would penalize drug companies that increase prices faster than inflation and cap annual premium growth. That's a big deal. That's that's very important for seniors who are struggling to afford drugs. And then the ACA provisions would extend healthcare subsidies to people uh, who got them as part of the American Rescue Plan for two more years, and I think ensures something like 13 million people don't see a big premium increase. So yeah. if you're one of those 13 million people, this is enormously important for you. Uh, if you're someone who's struggling to pay for your prescription drugs, obviously this is very important to you. So I- I'm not opposed to getting this done or suggesting it's not important. It's just often, you know, this is what we Democrats do a lot. We end up comparing what we're able to do with what we wish we could have done, and it makes accomplishments look smaller, which is understandable, but you know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, I will say that demoralizing. allowing Medicare to negotiate for cheaper prescription drugs is one of those democratic policies that politicians have been talking about for as long as you and I have been politics. Decades. We joke about the like, uh, every single democratic presidential candidate talks about like stopping tax breaks for companies that ship jobs overseas and giving them to companies who yeah. create jobs here. It's like campaign Mad Libs. Medicare negotiation is like is like that one. Yeah. It's one of the most popular <laughs> polling policies of all time. It's one of the things that Democrats have been talking about forever and haven't done. And just common sense. And it's common sense. And it's going to also cap annual out-of-pocket costs at $2,000 for all Medicare beneficiaries. So that's our annual thing. So that's it is a pretty big deal, but it is, of course, just a small piece of what we originally hoped for. And just uh, infuriating as you, as you read about, you know, Portugal and Spain burning to the ground and we're doing nothing on climate. Like, yeah. I totally get everyone's frustration, although this would be very important for a lot of seniors and a lot of people who are struggling to pay for their Medicare bills. 
So after this reconciliation bill, Democrats don't really have the votes to get the rest of Biden's agenda passed between now and the midterms. Um, Biden said he'll take uh, executive action on climate. So we'll see if he takes some of the action that we've just been talking about. Um, He should also take executive action on student debt relief, which we've been waiting for for a while. There's no excuse for that anymore. And uh, and basically, he should take executive action on anything else the administration thinks they can get away with at this point. Yeah, (laughs) because you have a couple months to let let, the midterms. The House is also reportedly moving forward on legislation that would guarantee other rights that Republicans in the Supreme Court might be coming after, like contraception and gay marriage. Um, Pelosi and Schumer have have talked about setting up votes for these. Uh, What do you think about that? I like the idea. I mean, we talk about this later with Tim Miller. Uh, about the need for Democrats to force Republicans to vote on things that are incredibly unpopular like this and that I think speak to the extremism of the Republican Party. Because clearly what we're seeing is that in the wake of Dobbs, Republicans aren't satisfied with their efforts to strip away abortion rights from women. They want to go a lot further. You know, Ted Cruz wants to ban gay marriage. There's people are talking about passing the most draconian anti-abortion laws you can think of. They're going after all, all kinds of rights. So yes, I, I'm in I'm in favor of putting forward as many tough votes for Republicans as we can. Will it matter? I'm not sure, but it's but, worth trying. And and you know what? If fucking Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema decide that the filibuster is more important than um than gay marriage, than the right to contraception, then they can explain it to their constituents. And I think it's probably time at this point for for Biden and the rest of the Democratic caucus, which they're moving towards to get a little tougher with them if they fucking block those votes. Well, the, the thing that's been very frustrating about all of the conversation around the climate change provisions and the reconciliation bill is it's really written as an intra-democratic party disaster or a mansion-only failure when there are 49 Republicans who oppose doing anything to stop the planet from becoming uninhabitable. Yeah, because many of them don't believe in climate change in the first place, and and all of them don't want to do anything about it. Right, but they all just sort of get a pass. Like The the more cynical you are, the more you get a pass on not doing anything. And that's, you know, tough Um, politics. Let's talk about how Democratic candidates handle their campaigns between now and November at this point. You know, on one hand, they've got a president with record low approval ratings, two Democratic senators who fucked up their legislative agenda. Uh, On the other... They get a Supreme Court and a Republican Party that's arguably more extreme than it was under Donald Trump, which is which is maybe one reason that the polls are showing that some of these Senate candidates, Democratic Senate candidates, are in better shape than Joe Biden. And it's, the polls are also showing that the, the midterm generic ballot is a little bit better for Democrats than, mm-hmm. of course, Joe Biden's approval ratings. Dan and I talked a little bit about this on Thursday, but how do you think Democrats should run in an environment like this? What should they be saying on the campaign trail? Yeah, I mean, look, with the caveat that I am um, skeptical of po- all polling forever and always, mm-hmm. thanks to That's the last fun. couple of elections, I do think it's worth... It's hard for me to answer this question sort of uh, writ large, like how should all Democrats run? But I do think it's worth worth looking at a couple campaigns that are going very well. Let's start with uh, Fetterman's campaign mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, uh, John Fetterman running for Senate. He hasn't been able to be on the campaign trail since May because of medical issues. But in that period, I feel like I have retained more messaging from his campaign than almost any other campaign out there. And obviously that's in part because Dr. Oz is a fun, flawed, like ripe target, right? He's just a weirdo, snake oil salesman celebrity who doesn't even live in the state. But the Fetterman campaign has been unbelievably creative and focused with their ads. And I really think it's working, right? They uh, they got Snooki from Jersey Shore to record a message on Cameo about how Dr. Oz moved from Jersey to Pennsylvania to find a new job. That went super viral, was incredibly memorable, was talked about on The View, right? Like that is like the gold standard of viral online ads. 
Um, they, the Fetterman campaign figured out that Dr. Oz recorded a TV ad in his New Jersey mansion. They hammered him for that. When Dr. Oz went to this like tourist trap cheesesteak place in Philly, Fetterman quote tweeted him and saying, ah, yes, the trip to Pats plus Gino is a rite of passage for every tourist. Uh, they flew a banner over the beaches saying, welcome home to New Jersey, right? Like the tone is light. It's funny. It's memorable. And it's relentlessly on message saying this guy is not from here. And it's just so impressive. They're filling this gap of not having a candidate on the trail. They're raising a ton of money. They're on the air. I mean, it's just like they are doing it how it should be done right now. I think what's so effective about that is it is this guy's not from here, but also he's out of touch and he doesn't give a shit about you. Yeah. And I do think that that is a message for Democrats about Republicans that we have not heard enough. Or Since at least Mitt heard Romney. In a while. It's, right. And it's like these people... They don't care about inflation. They don't care about gas prices. They don't care about your rent. They don't care about your cost of living. They care about deciding who you love, who you're allowed to marry, when you start a family, how many kids you have, what they learn in school, what books they read, what politics they have. Like, this is the shit that Republicans care about. Uh, they care about having control over your life. They care about controlling. They don't give a shit about your cost of living. They don't give a shit about the problems yeah. that you have. They care about, like, in, in, they care about imposing their narrow, extreme political view on the entire country. Doesn't matter if most people don't agree with it. Totally. They do not give a shit about you. And, and so I think Fetterman has made great strides in defining Dr. Oz as an out of touch out-of-state celebrity weirdo. Mm -hmm. The other sort of theme you're seeing out there is my opponent is very extreme. And I think the Warnock campaign is doing a great job of defining Herschel Walker in that way. Because again, Herschel Walker, he's helping them out a lot. He's helping out the, the Warnock campaign a lot. He said some incredibly weird stuff. Most recently, it was, it was Herschel Walker talking about climate change and the issue being that like good air is floating over to China That's and displacing the bad air. And it's like, weird. what is this guy talking about? He's totally incoherent, like a lot of his campaign. And I do think you need to drive that home because it can be disqualifying for voters. And look, a recent poll, again, I don't trust any polls, but a recent poll showed Warnock up by 10 points, which is shocking in Georgia, which is shocking given where Biden's approval is. So I do think like they need to get pressing that advantage Drilling Walker is unprepared for the job. But that kind of message that my opponent is too extreme for the job, I think will be effective in Georgia. It'll be effective in Wisconsin for whoever runs against Ron Johnson because he's just Looney Tunes. It'll be uh, a, a potential message for the Shapiro campaign against Doug Mastriano uh, in Pennsylvania because there's some really wackadoodle, as John McCain would say, extreme people out there running for office in the Republican Party this year. And I think you want to define them that way as early as you can. And I and we've been talking about this all year, but I don't think you have to choose between my opponent is extreme and my opponent is out of touch. I think it is my opponent is so obsessed with his extreme positions or her extreme positions that they don't give a shit about you. <laughs> yeah. Like they're 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 trying to criminalize all abortions with no exceptions whatsoever. That's what Republicans care about. They don't give a shit about inflation. They don't care about what you're struggling with. And I think you can combine both of them. And I think Warnock's doing that well. I think Fetterman's doing that well. We're seeing that in a lot of these Democratic Senate races. So. Yeah. Just really great like work by campaign teams, especially the sort of digital teams, the folks creating the online content to fill the void and and deliver a negative message against their Republican opponents while the candidate, either in Fetterman's case, is sort of off the playing field for a while recovering or Warnock carries a positive message about what it'll do for the state. Totally agree. All right. When we come back, we will talk to uh, Tim Miller about his brand new book. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. The question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? 
the best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. You know, you know, you know. Have you been able to squeeze that special thing into your schedule, John? Yeah, that's. I think it's thanks to therapy. Therapy can help you find what matters to you, so you can do more of it, Mm -hmm. more time for you. I, uh, you know, because we've been doing what a weekday. Mm -hmm. I actually put that in my therapy spot. You know, I I replaced therapy with doing an extra podcast. Mm. It was a huge mistake. So, uh, what do you spend time doing at therapy now? Well, now I brought therapy back. I added therapy back to another time because uh, it turns out talking. That's going to make the jokes better. Well, it's certainly going to make things better for the team. <laughs> <laughs> if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com PSA today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot PSA. Joining us in studio today, writer at The Bulwark, MSNBC analyst, former Republican operative, and author of the new book, Why We Did It, a travelogue from the Republican road to hell, our old pal Tim Miller. Old pal is right, John. It's been a long time. You're starting to look like Roger Sterling over there. Okay. Uh, pretty soon. Okay. With the I did not invite you on for the insults. <laughs> it's nice to be back with you guys. I just, uh, you know, it's it been is, a while. It is good to see you, Tim. Mm. you self-conscious here. Um <laughs> You wrote this fantastic book. Um, It is about why so many of your Republican friends and colleagues ended up going full MAGA, um, which we will get to. But you were pretty tough on yourself, and I would argue more self-reflective and self-critical than most people in professional politics. How did you get to that place? I felt like I had to do it if I was going to write about them in the first part. Uh, You know, I had an agent call me when I was was interested in writing a book and just sort of trying that out. You know, my 10 year, in the 10th year of my midlife crisis, uh, you know, I wanted to try something (laughs) else new. And uh, I was talking to some agents and one of them was basically like, Tim, why don't you write something about like the 10 douchiest MAGA grifters in America? He's like, we'll sell a million copies of that. I was like, that's good. That would have been enjoyable, right? But um, I felt like if I was going to write about all these folks, I really need to look back at myself and 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 be honest with the reader about myself, for starters. But more than that, if I want to under, really understand like why they went along with bad shit, I I wanted to like be look at myself. Why did I go along with shit I knew was bad, right? And, and you can know your own motivations, you know, better than you can know other people's motivations, no matter how good you're you you're, you are friends with them. And and some of the people I wrote about were friends. Uh, and so, you know, I wanted to reflect on, look, I'm gay. How did I work for anti-gay homophobes, right? Like, what was the brain gymnastics I did in order to, to rationalize that? And, and I felt like by exploring that in the book, hopefully it shined more of a light on the rationalizations that, that these other folks uh, uh, used to, to go along with Donald Trump. So, you know, the, the elephant in the room here, or the rhino in the room, yep. as it the is. Rhino in the room. I'm not a rhino anymore. I'm I know, officially I, uh, out. The I'm lib officially in the room. Three libs in the room. So we used to come on Crooked Shows back in 2017. Yep. We ended up parting ways because of some reporting about corporate work you did, yep. including work with this guy, Chuck Johnson, who's a right-wing troll, who you write about in the yep. book. In the book, I mean... He wrote a very mean substack about my book, oh, which he? I think nine, nine people have read, yeah, nine and that makes me feel, feel very sad. Sounding. So in the book, you write about the fact that you know, you ultimately came to feel like it wasn't just your work for Republican candidates that you came to regret, but that you also felt like the corporate work contributed to this broader problem. Can you explain why and sort of how you got to that place? Yeah, and I thought that was another important 
you know, element of, of what was in the book, right? I, I, I did something good in 2016, which was I said, fuck this. I'm not going to vote for Donald Trump. I'm going to support Hillary Clinton. And, you know, I, I worked with a PAC called Our Principles PAC. Mm-hmm. I write about the, one of my favorite anecdotes in the book is that every other person who was on Our Principles PAC, which was a, the main principle was to stop Donald Trump, ended up being on a pro-Donald Trump PAC yeah, after he won depressing. the primary, except for me and one other person. So I did that. Um, and, and I think I, and then Trump wins and, you know, we all go into this depressive place. We don't need to revisit all that. And I'm trying to figure out what to do next with my life. Right. I'm like, okay, I I can't go back into Republican politics anymore. Um, you know, what, what should I do? And and I, and kind of inertia, basically I wrote about this, like inertia takes over, right? Like, well, what do I know how to do in my career? Well, I know how to be a, a hitman, like, uh, an opposition research magnet. And so I guess I'll just do that for corporate clients instead of for political clients. I can't work for Republicans anymore. And, um, you know, so I went and did that for about a year or two. And that's, uh, you know, how we got caught up in our kerfuffle based on the work that I was doing then with Facebook. And I just, I looked back on that and it's like, well, any of the individual things that people were like mad at me about about that, like, you know, we could argue back and forth on like whether that was, you know, a good thing to do or a bad thing to do. But what I wanted to reflect on is like, why was I doing this shit at all? Like, I had this big like moment of clarity in my life, which was like, man, like the the, the Republicans are going down to this dark place. But I compartmentalized out the rest of my work life, you know, and uh, and and continued going along with, you know, doing this sort of uh, opposition research work that I, I think was is really contaminating to the public discourse. Uh, you know, if your job is to put negative information out about people every day, like that's not adding anything to society if you're doing it on behalf of, of anyone, frankly, but corporate interests for sure. And so... Uh, you know, I, I, I thought that in a lot of ways it tied into the theme of this book, right? Which is like a lot of the people who were in different shoes than me kind of went along with Trump for the same reason, mm-hmm. like the same sort of inertia, you know? Like these were people who um, knew Trump was bad. Maybe they probably in private voted for Paul Ryan or the Pope or whatever, you know, they wrote somebody in. and But they're Republican political consultants and they said, well, I can't go along with Donald Trump. I'm not going to go into the White House. What should I do? I guess I'll just keep running ads for Marco Rubio and, you know, or doing spinning for, you know, Cory Gardner, you know, you name the person. And, and so in a lot of ways, I felt like even though, you know, I, I got I landed in the correct place where they didn't on the matter of Trump and, and the enablers in the party, like our rationalizations for kind of continuing to do work that was not enriching, that was outside of our integrity, um, was the same. And so I kind of wanted to explain how I got caught up in that trap, because I think it explains why a lot, how a lot of these guys got caught up in that trap and still are fucking doing it seven years later. Yeah. I mean, it's an incredible examination of all the ways people compartmentalize their support for Trump, or I guess their political lives versus the things they essentially believe in. You, you, you do a great job of defining different groups of them. Um, and reading through it, I mean, you can talk about some of those groups if you want. And also, you know, a lot of them, I held a lot of people you talked about in the book in contempt. I think the folks that bugged me the most were people like someone you report on named Josh Holmes, who is a sort of a Mitch McConnell stooge who supported Trump basically to get super PAC money and corporate clients. That might be the top person that frustrated the most. The others are the the sort of committee to save America people who think they're so important that they're above, you know, the stink of Trump because they are somehow saving the country from him. Was there like, as you went through this reporting, I could feel the frustration welling up in you in in chapter. You write about it pretty honestly. Was there a type of 
person or like Trump enabler that ended up bothering you the most in the process? Oh, man. Um, yeah, there was. I, w- I just want to get into the Holmes thing really quick because I mm-hmm. think it backs into kind of what we were just talking about. Like the most, before I talk about the thing that bothers me the most, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going to be positive for one second here <laughs> on Pod Save <laughs> America. Um, like one of the things that's been the most gratifying about the book and that I hope you know, other people take from this is is that I ha- I've heard from like Republicans who are working in, in politics right now who are using the same rationalizations I did to keep doing, you know, this work that we were talking about and that the people in this book were keep doing. They know Trump is bad. They see, they know, obviously they hated January 6th, but they're still, whatever, they're a press secretary for a random senator. And they're like, if my senator loses, some insane senator will replace them. Mm-hmm. And they read this book and they're like, man, you made me feel really bad about myself, but like <laughs> in a good. good way, right? Yeah, and so that's why I felt. That's why I thought that that part was like looking at my uh, explaining my own actions was so important, and then getting into the the Holmeses of the world. Like Holmes is just like the Uber Alice like version of this, right? I mean, he. It's not like Josh Holmes. This like. Five foot four, like Chamber of Commerce, Brooks Brothers, Republican, like really wanted Donald a Donald Trump autocracy, right? Yeah. Like, like, like we, like obviously he doesn't, okay, right. but he is succeeding on, uh, you know, in in continuing to work in the Republican apparatus, like beyond anyone's wildest imaginations, like financially. Uh, you know, he uh, he's, he's, he continues to do well. He continues to be courted by top GOP donors and campaign hands. And, and so, like, these guys, though, live in this culture where they don't have to do this examination that I did in this book because the culture that they live in incentivizes not looking at themselves at all and actually attacking the people who challenge them, right? Yeah. And, and, and so I think this is the important corrupting part of, of the D.C. culture, obviously, and, and this, we're talking about the Republicans here in particular, is, is like – if somebody goes up to Josh Holmes at a bar and says, like, what the fuck are you doing, man? Like, you know this guy is bad. Like, you know that, that this is dangerous. Like, in, among Holmes' friend group at that bar, they would be like, that guy's the jerk. Yeah. Right? Like, that guy's yep. the jerk for, like, puncturing the bubble. And then, you know, they all might be able to sort of do gallows humor about how Trump's a buffoon and how they know he's a buffoon and, how, you know, whatever among themselves. But it's like this cozy little club, this cozy little culture uh, where where they don't feel like they're getting challenged. And I, one of the people, I, I, didn't, I didn't name everyone in the book because I wanted people to be honest who interviewed with me. One of these guys like says to me on background, he's like, you know, Tim, it's just like, I get so, I know Trump's an idiot and I just get so mad because, you know, woke culture and everybody's judging me and my wife's friends are judging me and they're calling me a racist. And and it's like, I just, I I feel like I'm left with no choice but to look at the one or two things that I like about Donald Trump and focus on those and focus on keeping my job, you know, because all these other folks out there are so mean to me. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I mean, you're gonna you're on background here, but you know that I heard that, right? <laughs> I mean, like I will always know that you said that. Yeah, like that's embarrassing. really embarrassing. Yeah. But but I was forced to like him. I'm yeah. I'm forced by the left to like yeah, Donald but, Trump. But he victimhood. felt comfortable saying that because that they say that to each other, right? Like that's what well, that's like their we got, yeah, that's the rationalization. Right? We got in this cozy place, and that's what they you know where he felt comfortable with me, and that's what they all say to each other. I mean, I think one of the categories of people that you described that's part of that DC culture that bothered me the most were the strivers. Yeah. And you write a chapter that's focused on uh, Elise Stefanik, uh, the uh, congresswoman from New York. And you you wrote that the excuse that all of her friends make is that she's just following the politics of her district, right? (laughs) Which has become a little Trumpier. Now, there are times where I have actually 
bought that excuse or thought about that excuse myself because I always thought the way this goes is the right wing media radicalizes Republican voters. Yep. And then Republican politicians just do what these radicalized voters want in order to keep their job. And that's not, you know, like that's still bad, but that's what they're doing. But you argue that with Stefanik, that's not the case. Like, can you explain why? Yeah. And and this is I called uh, this was the one time that political playbook has ever been useful um, <laughs> because I went for and I was, Elise wouldn't wouldn't talk to me. She emailed me and it said, I see your Twitter feed, so I'm not going to talk to you for this book. And I was like, Ugh, OK, well, I knew Elise. Pretty, we worked together at the RNC. And so I was like, OK, well, if I'm going to write this, I want to at least talk to her friends. And I looked at who went to her wedding in the book. And so I called all of the people that went all the Republican types that went to her wedding. And literally to a person, they all gave this same excuse. Like I just said, what's you know, what happened to Elise? First question. It's so I was like, well, you know, this is what our voters want. It's what our voters want. But here, but there's a there's a fundamental problem with that. The next district over from Elise is John Katko. Mm-hmm. Now, John Katko might not be a perfect guy. Like the Pod Save America listeners might not feel like, boy, do I love John Katko. Okay, <laughs> but he he voted to impeach Donald Trump. Right. He was the one that said that he was going to do the January 6th committee before Kevin McCarthy pulled it. Um, you know, he didn't go along with idiotic conspiracy theories about Ukraine and, you know, uh, and the Biden crime family or whatever at least Stefanik is saying these days. And 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 he kept getting reelected. And he got kept getting reelected in the same district. And so it's like, well, that isn't that wasn't it then. I mean, she could have kept getting reelected. I, I think what was somebody going to primary her? I, you know, may, maybe she started tweeting like me, you know, like, yeah, she couldn't do that. But she could have survived. There are plenty of House Republicans that none, no, none of you, you, your listeners ever heard of that have survived not being brave, but not being Elise. What she wanted was something else. She wanted the rush. She wanted the brass ring. And that, and she went after Liz Cheney, and she got it. Like that's the sad. This is a, also kind of a depressing book. I know the sad part about all this that you have to deal with in therapy and yoga is that like <laughs> sometimes good things do happen to bad people, right? And so this worked for her. So what 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 actually motivated her was not this is what her voters wanted. It was if I want to maximize my power within the party, I have to act like this, right? Like this is how you know I can guarantee. That I can un- unseat Liz Cheney. I can guarantee that I can go to events and get big cheers. You know, this happened to a lot of them. At least I, I-, I wanted to use some other examples, but the least example is just so stark. It, like all the ones felt like lame by comparison. But Marco, the same thing happened to Marco, right? Marco, yeah. remember in 2016, was like, I'm going to be a check on Trump or whatever and yep. conservative values. And then all of a sudden, Trump comes to Florida and he has these rallies. And like, it's like, not- it's nothing like the Marco events. You know, they're like these monster truck rallies. People are cheering for him and they're going crazy. And, Mar- and Marco's friends, I've asked them some that used to work for him like he just gets caught up in it he got caught up in it and he, and he sees this that, that that it's more than just like this with the like i'm gonna have to do the minimum the voters want i want i want the voters to adore me and i want to get as much power as i can get i think it's such an important point because we talk a lot about like the culture and the larger forces that led to trump yeah as if individuals don't have agency and as if leaders don't have real influence and it's sort of like what drove it home for me was just watching that last january 6th hearing when stephen ayers who was this random guy from ohio who stormed the capitol was like yeah if donald trump had told me not to go i wouldn't have gone and you're like oh if yeah if a couple republican leaders or in donald trump and a couple people on fox had just said no actually joe biden won the election which is the truth they all knew then people wouldn't have died at the capitol right and, and let's look at this just really quick. This counterfactual had 10 more of them voted to convict him in the impeachment thing, which obviously 10 of them wanted to do. I, you know, I don't, you had J-Mart on about his book. Many of them confessed it in private, mm-hmm. like right. to J-Mart in those following days. Had 10 of them done that, 
Like, we'd be done with this motherfucker. Like, yeah. it'd be over right now. And by the way, the Republican Party would be fine. You know, like, it was, it's not even a long-term, you can't even sell me on this, the voters demanded this, this wasn't, like, we had to do this to save the GOP. B.S., everyone would have just moved on to Ron DeSantis. Yes. Everyone would have just moved on to Ron DeSantis, and Trump would have been an old fart truthing away by the pool with the cougars, <laughs> you know? And we could have dealt with the Ron DeSantis problems, which are different, and, and they're, you know, their yeah. own category. But, the, but, yeah, like, actual choices do matter. Yeah, you know, you really hit on something that drives me crazy about Washington, which is uh, politicians are talked about like they have no choice, like politics must <laughs> drag them where they need to go, right? Like they have no agency, like they can't do the principal thing. And and the reason Elise Stefanik is such an interesting character in this, not to pick on her, but she deserves to be, she picked, deserves on, to be picked on, is yeah. that, you know, there's this 2012 GOP autopsy after Mitt Romney loses to Barack Obama that you worked on and yeah. you detail how that process went who was a part of it. And, you know, you had former Bush spokesman Ari Fleischer pushing for more moderate positions on gay rights and on immigrations, demanding that the report be read aloud in Spanish to show, signal like an openness to the Latino community. You have Elise Stefanik literally authoring the report before getting elected as a moderate congresswoman and then going full MAGA. I mean, I guess what was interesting to me about that report in that process was one, it just shows how all these people that went full MAGA truly, truly know better on a deep level, intellectually, morally, spiritually, but also that that report that was really celebrated at the time was a lot of wish casting from kind of a DC establishment class that maybe wasn't actually listening to the base that was like, no, 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 we want to snort a line of Infowars and yeah. red meat and like the base really nasty stuff. Yeah, I, I thought there were two lessons from my like reflection on the autopsy. The first is that a lot of people, particularly on the right, want the Trump question to be about policy, right? And want it to be like, oh, Tim didn't go along with this because he's a rhino. Right. And like the, we went along with it because we realized we had to make some sacrifices in order to get these good policies that Donald Trump really so deeply cared about. And like the autopsy shows that that is like not true at all. Right. Like what divided the people for, who went along with Trump from Ditton had nothing to do with policy. <laughs> later in the book, well, you might get to Liz Fair later in the book. She's like this hardline, insane conservative. Mm -hmm. right? And she quits eventually. And all the us and all these rhinos like Elise Stefanik are still in there. Liz yep. Cheney is this prime example of this. So so it really like the choice to go along with, with Trump wasn't about policy. That's why the book isn't about policy. It's about like these ethical and moral choices and rationalizations. As far as the autopsy itself, um, I, one other counterfactual I look back on with kind of regret is I think our intentions were pure I guess, to a certain degree that we like we did want the party to be nicer to immigrants and gays and more welcoming. And and, and everybody it, it confirmed our priors of all the people in the room that were writing that autopsy. And that was sweet and nice. But like we didn't listen to what the base wanted. And so where we went wrong is instead of dealing with that by actually addressing their grievances. Like the base's grievances weren't about immigration, like they weren't about immigration and not even the base or the working class voters that Trump appealed to. It was about the forever wars. It was about their communities being hollowed out. Right. Like you could imagine an alternate autopsy that's like, well, you know, it wouldn't have been Tim Miller's party, but it would have been like, maybe we can be more protectionist. Right. And maybe we can like be less globalist and maybe we can appeal to, you know, actually address your grievances. And then maybe there wouldn't have been this vacuum for Donald Trump to come into. I don't know. That's uh, like, who knows? But I, I probably not. Probably not. I, I, but but it would have at least been a good faith try. I wonder about that, too, because I think you say in the in the book that the autopsy reflects sort of the 
George W. Bush, Paul Ryan view of the world, right. which includes like free markets and low taxes. Right. And those are things that you didn't want to touch. Right. On the on the Democratic side, I like wish we could run against Mitt Romney again and Paul Ryan, right. because I know that the positions we take vis-a-vis Mitt Romney and Paul Ryan are popular positions. Right. But I do wonder, like, how to address sort of the anger and the and the populism that's out there with that, like the, the party of Trump now knows how to address that. With yeah. racism and xenophobia and yeah. all the bullshit. The question is, how does all of us, how do all of us who want to like protect democracy, <laughs> whether you're a never Trump or a liberal, address that anger yeah, this in, is in like, a way that's different? I think that's the big question right now that I don't know that anyone is quite figured out. It's the Fetterman question, right? I think exactly. it's an interesting, it will be an interesting test case in, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. And this is where... You know, I am. I, we're a part of this all big happy family coalition that we're on. Us never Trumpers and and the le- and the socialists and on the left and everybody do, does love us never Trumpers being part <laughs> of the coalition. And you know, saying like you always want us to be more moderate. I'm like, not really. Like I want you to be smarter. You know, I want you to be smarter. And like I'm willing to to be to supportive of Fetterman against an insurrectionist. Like, like fake doctor, <laughs> used to be a real doctor, but like scam doctor who doesn't, you know, then uh, uh, as, as just because that's that needs to happen. And he's running against Fetterman who like, like might not even like the capitalist system. Unclear for me, like where Fetterman is on some things that I feel strongly about, but I'm, but I'm for it. And, and I do, and I think that this is an open question. Like, can the Democrats ch- do what we didn't do in 2012? Which is like channel these people's grievances in a legitimate way, right? And and say we're going to actually try to address your problems by doing X, Y, and Z, um, you know, with econ- different economic policies and 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 different changes, you know, and various things that these Republicans aren't going to go along with because they're all fake populists, right? Like they don't actually well, they don't actually want to do anything. They're all phony, and and I, I think that could that wedge might work. I, it might not work. I don't know, but I, I think that the Fetterman is like the most stark. Um, you know, a test case for this. Unfortunately, like these test cases are pretty high stakes. Yeah, and it's it's you know the the mood music is is difficult for Fetterman. Although I think do think they're running a really good campaign. I do too. I mean, I guess for me, like the further we get from 2016, I think the initial you know all the reporting initially was like, oh, this is all about disaffected working class voters. They were left behind by NAFTA, et cetera. Et cetera. I feel like the more data I read, it's like actually there's sort of like a hardcore white Christian nationalist base that has always been kind of like the, the, the beating heart of the GOP that people thought Trump wouldn't appeal to because they were like, oh, he's a disgusting sinner, misogynist, 10 divorces. And the, and the reality is those people don't care as long as you further their agenda, right? Like they yeah. want you, they want conservative judges, they want abortion overruled, and they want to tell people like me to shove it, right? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the piece. But then he, he seemed to have married that with this young white bro republican like bro bible reading frat dude right and like it seems like he's made being a republican a fun subversive act yeah you know what i mean like being in the 60s being anti-war and pissing off your parents by going to woodstock today it's like wearing a maga hat or or you know sort of i don't know like supporting trump in some way do you think i have a remotely accurate read on this and like do you think there's a way for the Democratic Party to reach these these younger white male voters because I feel like they're they're slipping away if not gone. 
I don't think they're gone. Um, I do think you have a good read on it. Now we're outside of the confines of the books. So I just want everybody to know if you don't like this upcoming opinion, uh, you can still read and Please. enjoy why we did it. <laughs> we, we need to, um, we, but, um, this we need is, to hear <laughs> opinions we don't agree yeah, with so, on this show. This That's is okay. A, yeah, yeah, so here's uh, here's my take. I worry like about the Democrats. Look at just the abortion thing as a recent example, right? Like you have Dave Portnoy, who's uh, who's the barstool guy, going out and saying like, this is crazy. We're overturning Roe versus Wade. And like, I, I don't, you know, I think women should have rights. Um, you know, obviously some of the barstool Rogan crowd, they, um, you know, these bros aren't ready to be dads. Like they can't even iron their shirts. Okay. Like they want to have freedom of choice in their, you know, if any, any situations that they have in, in relationships. Uh, and, and yet like, are the Democrats even trying to talk to these people? Like, I just don't know, right? Is there anybody, to reach out to that audience. Yeah, to reach that audience. Like, is there someone that is capable, even a prominent Democrat, of going on to one of those shows? I think Bernie tried and, with Rogan. Yeah, yeah. And then he gets, he gets finger whacked. Yeah, is that a, is finger that, is that a Twitter China. Is that a Twitter phenomenon yeah. where Bernie yeah, gets out of well, that, whereas, you know, the actual audience you reach might be a lot larger? Yeah, I never know. For sure. No, it's for sure it's a Twitter phenomenon, but I think that the Twitter phenomenon is preventing candidates from trying, right? Because mm-hmm. they're afraid of getting browbeat. And if they, you know, if they're like, oh, you go on this Portnoy, but like he's a sexist and all that, I, I, I don't want to defend Dave Portnoy. I, you know, I don't, I don't, I'm not interested in boobs. Like I don't listen to <laughs> Barstool, right? Like, right. but like as a strategic matter, you know, trying to speak to these people' actual concerns and coalition build, I think is very important. Like particularly when the nature of the threat is so great, and like that is where this does tie into the book. Like I felt like you know, like we beat Donald Trump twenty twenty. I did our vat, and like we did the bull. I could have just m- walked off the stage here and Republican said, "Republican voters okay. against Trump." This is actually very interesting. Yeah. You should explain a little bit. Yeah, I think so we did in uh, Republican voters against Trump, which is an ad based campaign in twenty twenty, where we had republic actual Republican voters say in their own words why they were not voting for Donald Trump. Most of them were voting for Joe Biden. Some of them were just writing in. And then we tested to see which of those resonated with actual Republican voters. And then we ran just ads that, that you know, were these real people talking that was not, you know, not cut, not um, not produced ads, right? Uh, and, we ran it, and we ran it to target, uh, you know, Republican audiences to try to depress Trump's vote. And uh, well, there's like some evidence this worked. I mean, if you look at certain places in Wisconsin, people like voted for Biden and then the Republican down ticket. So, so anyway... I think that these sort of strategic approaches are necessary, you know, as part of a big coalition, given the nature of the threat. Like, it'd be one thing if it was Clinton and Dole, you know, mm-hmm. and I would understand, like, the argument for, like, actually, we need to make our party a little bit more pure and, like, move to the left and, you know, on, on these sorts of things. But, like, right now, like, where are the areas of where you can draw a broader audience, where you can appeal to ex-Republicans, where you can appeal to the bros, who, by the way, many of them used to be Democrats, well, who, like, they, these are Obama-Trump voting, mm-hmm. you know, the people. Like, how can we kind of penetrate this? And I, I do worry a little bit about this, about that the, the effort isn't there on that. And it's it's not just these bros that Tommy's talking about, too. It's like a, a broad swath of working-class voters yeah. now of all races, yes. not just white working-class voters. Like, I just, I just did a focus group for the wilderness in Las Vegas with Hispanic working class voters who were like middle of the road. Okay. Yeah. Some some Democrats, some Republicans, some yeah. independent. And like they're they were horrified by what the Supreme Court did right. on, on Dobbs, right? So they think the Republicans have been too extreme on a lot of these social issues. But they're like, I care about housing. I can't afford rent. I can't afford housing, inflation, gas, and like who is what politician of either party is like speaking to my concerns. Right. There was one there was one guy 
who had voted for Biden, who now said uh, he's going to vote for Ron. He's 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 favorites uh, Ron DeSantis in 2024, but he also really likes AOC. And I'm like, I'm sorry, I have to ask, <laughs> like, what the fuck? And he's like, because she is an outsider and she takes on the system. And there's on all these politicians are too cozy in Washington. It's all establishment. I'm just looking for people to take on the system now. Okay, you can say whatever you want yeah. about that view, but there is this feeling that like people have all these these concerns about like just their cost of living and their life and no one is addressing them and no one seems like they're fighting for them. And this should be an adva- this should be an area where the Democrats can speak to these people because right. the Republicans don't give a fuck about them. They Which is don't. why you get a lot of people who are just who are supposedly these middle of the road swing voters who are like, oh, I do like Bernie Sanders. Right. Because someone like and, that is speaking to their Yeah, Republicans. Exactly. And that's and that's fine. And and maybe and and Right, economic concerns like different people might have different things that they want to course, solve. Right, like like some people might want more, uh, you know, you know, better social services. Better, and other people say, well, we need to drill more. Uh, you know, what I mean, like yeah. it's not exactly a, a, you, you know one I, on the ideological spectrum, right? But here's the thing: the Republicans don't care about that stuff at all. Like all they're talking about is going back to 2020 and relitigating the last election and whether it was fraudulent or not. And like Hunter Biden's laptop and like what are, like they're Mitch McConnell said that he doesn't have a. a, a uh, agenda like right. that their whole yeah. agenda is stopping Biden and so the problem is that these voters who are rightly frustrated are, are like sending all of their frustration at the at the party in power which like makes sense and, and so so that has to you know that has to be disrupted in some way by by demonstrating to them that no okay we're, we're trying you know we're actually trying to address these the problem but these guys are the ones that don't want to do anything there's like a, the you're sort of a two parts of your of your comments like there's a message issue and there's a medium issue like yeah. I do agree that we do need a Bernie Sanders or anyone else, frankly, to go on a Joe Rogan and try to reach his audience. And although he said abhorrent things about many communities, yeah. we should try to talk him and uh, explain to him why that's wrong and explain to his audience why that's wrong. And frankly, yeah. as you're sitting uh, quite literally in a liberal safe space, like that's a message I've been trying to take to heart more these days. But it's also, you know, a message thing. Like, and the book I think really captures the power and allure and danger of you know, like only caring about your team and tribalism and resentment of the other side. Because, you know, when you think about climate change, you've got a bunch of Republicans who would literally rather live in an uninhabitable planet and and hand up uninhabitable planet to their kids than admit that annoying libs like me are were right to care about the polar bears. You know what I mean? And yeah, you're dri- it, driving around in your Prius with your coffee culotta, <laughs> right. yeah, the your, coffee your, culotta, your paper culotta. straw. Just not a liberal elite thing. Yeah, yeah in you're... the book, someone suggested a coffee culotta that Dunkin' Donuts is a liberal elite thing. But again, like I mean, so is your? Do you think that a a Republican voters against Trump style campaign where you have a bunch of Republicans who say, "I used to not believe in climate change, but this is why I do." That might be a more effective way. To peel voters away because I do worry that, you know, like I, I think that a lot of Democrats just get tuned out the minute they start talking because there's a D next to their name. Yeah. Or it's, I mean, I also think there's a substance issue, by the way, while I'm litigating all my complaints with yeah, the letter. I'm coming into this safe space know. to tell you all the things that you guys are annoying me about. Um, uh, despite the fact that, you know, I'm with you. I'm, I'm, I, voted, <laughs> I voted for Gavin Newsom like 17 times because of all the recalls, unfortunately. Being a self-loathing um, Democrat is kind of uh, par yeah. for the course. Uh, so right, welcome okay. to the but, team. But, but okay, but also substance, like on the on the abortion stuff, on the reconciliation. Can't we like pull some of this stuff out and, and hit the Republicans on, on the fact? Because they're going to block everything, you know, and all of the popular items and BBB 
Like, can we not just pick one of them and like say, okay, we're going to run on this? And and if, and if Joe Manchin and the Republicans are the ones that vote no, then then run against Joe Manchin and the Republicans, or maybe Joe Manchin will get off the House vote and decide that he'd vote for that one thing. I, yeah, you know, or or make Ron Johnson vote up or down on whether a teenager should have the right to an I abortion. I agree with that. Uh, right, like I can't. So I I think that there's a, a substance part of this. There also is a messenger. And and anyway, I, I guess my more my only point on the messenger thing is unfortunately. It's going to take unperfect, imperfect messengers to break through to these people. And like the lesson from the book, the, the is is if if you if we don't like cultivate that, then then someone else is going to do it. That 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 isn't going to be great, right? And, right? and so you know what I mean. Like like we were not the Republican. I'm not saying that there will be a Democratic Trump. What I am saying is like the Republican establishment was not messaging to things that people cared about, and and the voters were starting to tune us out. And we we're like, hey, here's another dose of Jeb, you know. Right, and right, it's right. like, and then, and 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 Donald Trump came along, and voters were like, no, f you, I'm going to go with this guy. And that that I think could happen in the like center left, right, where where the where the Democratic primary gets disrupted by some by somebody. That that is a little bit more irreverent, you know. That it is speaking more to this, you know, big center um, that that people do listen to. So I, I do think finding different kind of messengers who are going to be responsible about it is. I mean, it's something that should happen. It requires a, a megaphone too, though, right? right like yeah. I thought, a, a really interesting part of the book is when you talked about um, how center right media publications, media outlets, like you, you talked about the Independent Journal Review, yeah failed because they weren't giving the base what they really wanted yeah and 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 you can you contrasted that with breitbart which just gave them all the all the good stuff which is bad yeah. stuff no um, here's the post book scary thing about how the conservative media thing goes i get a call from a breitbart reporter um after the book read the book said i really got it you know because i <laughs> the reason i said i got it is because i understood that it was the breitbart was the tail that was dragging like the josh holmes you know all the josh yeah. holmes guys think that they're in charge but they're not like it's the breitbart comment section that is in charge mm-hmm. and you know you might be in charge on these random little issues right that nobody cares about but on the major things they're getting dragged along by the base this guy calls me and says but here's the weird thing you missed is that during january 6th breitbart <laughs> this was self-identified we were responsible actually because we just talked about the drop boxes. You know, we didn't go along with all of the real crazy stuff like Venezuela. Oh, oh, oh. You know, but he's not like, responsible for January 6th. Responsible actors. Yeah, responsible Got actors okay. but as compared to like OAN and Newsmax and Gateway Pundit. And the so people that like, were advising uh, the president. Yeah, the, the people that were advising the, like they were outflanking Breitbart. And so this is this kind of death spiral that you, that uh, the, the right has gotten into, right? And, and that is true about what you, what you, John, said earlier about how it's like the right-wing media is feeding the base's anger, like the base's anger is feeding, poli- you know, the politicians. And there's nobody that is breaking that cycle. And, and instead, what you have is this quote-unquote center-right like to the extent that exists anymore, media outlets are just have either gotten sucked fully all the way in, you know, to being complicit in that, you know, or are just total kind of niche outliers. You know, I went on like the Dispatch podcast. God, I love those guys, and said this, and you know, Stephen Hayes is like, "You're calling me niche." And I'm like, I'm sorry, I, I, I don't, I didn't mean <laughs> yes. it. As, I didn't mean it as an insult, but like, yeah, no, I mean, like the idea true. that there are, you know, that the that a media outlet on the right can survive by being, you know, more more in the center and more moderating, it just isn't there and and you know, so that that's dragging the whole process along. Okay. 
Beyonce, Katanji Brown Jackson, the lady who spent 500 days in a cave. Women are all around us. And this Women's History Month, the Crooked Store is celebrating with a pop-up shop featuring favorites from women of color founded companies. For a limited time, the SheCommerce pop-up shop has everything from delicious goodies to kids books to candles, all from small companies that we love. It is a great way to support women of color while treating a woman in your own life. Maybe that's yourself to a sweet distraction from the endless horrors that we face every single day. Happy Women's History Month to all. Check out what's in stock at crooked.com slash store for this month only. Look, you know, you brought up abortion as an issue electorally a few times. I mean, Roe versus Wade is overturned. Uh, clearly now states are passing the most draconian anti-abortion laws they can possibly pass in many instances. There is talk of trying to pass a federal abortion ban. Um, There's reporting today in the New York Times about women who are having miscarriages, uh, not getting life-saving care when they need it because there is a fear that it might be called, quote-unquote, an abortion, create legal liability. Like, literal fucking nightmare horror scenarios, right? Like, my wife and I went through some tough things earlier this year. And the thought of going to the hospital with her when she was having a, a miscarriage and being told, you know, we got to hit pause on this and we, you know, see where this goes before we could write. Like, it makes me want to fucking murder somebody. Right. Yeah. And so I, I guess my question is like, do you think that the broad, the party is in a place where they might start to read some of these stories and see some of these laws and think, whoa, 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 this has gotten more extreme than we wanted. Or, is all of this really just about owning the libs and telling people what to do and controlling women's bodies and and controlling people that are not in their in group? I, I don't what, I don't see any evidence that the, that there's going to be a whoa whoa whoa. And unfortunately, because what John was talking about earlier, uh, uh, Republicans might get the message in the midterms that that they can act with impunity on this issue. You know, like that they don't they're not going to suffer any political damage from it all if the Republicans have a good midterm. So uh, this is and then you run into a 2024 situation where, uh, you know, there might be a competition. You know, you see Ron uh, uh, DeSantis and Abbott and like trying to outdo each other. Right. On on these restrictive bills. So, no, I mean, I think that if, if we understand and what I wrote about in the front end is I think we created this monster in a lot of ways. But if the driving motivation of the Republican base is grievance, is, is if the, and this is one big difference between the Republican base and the Democratic base, is like the Democratic base have actual policy prescriptions that they would like to see implemented. At this point, the Republican base like doesn't really. They got nothing. Right? It's like very nihilistic. It's like we want to see the left punished. We want to see these women and their purple hair punished. We want to see immigrants punished and the media punished and the mm-hmm. Pod Save America fuckers and the cucks and right like I mean, that, the, the absence of any platform at the 2020 convention sort of said it all right there. From that point on, there was there was there's no policy driving the driving the. Train. So that is the driving factor. Like the question is, okay, are there enough responsible? you know, Republicans in certain places to try to do, but like, where is the evidence of this, right? I, I do think that, you know, could the Democrats cobble together? I, you'd have to get 10, right? Like 10 Republicans to sort of moderate this this thing in the Senate. Like, who are they? Like, who yeah, are the no. 10 Republicans? Like, you could get three, maybe. Um, but that's why, like, as frustrating as it can be on the Democratic side to be like, oh, keep voting and keep focusing on elections, stuff like that. Yeah. The only thing that Republicans are going to understand is getting beaten. 
Yeah. There's going to be no moral change of heart here. No. If politically they start losing, if they like, if they don't have a great midterm or if they have a midterm that's not as good as they thought, then maybe they think, ah, some of those positions that we took on abortion might be too extreme. They're not going to think about it because now they suddenly had a change of heart. But if suddenly they start losing, yeah, then maybe they'll think about it, which is why they have to be defeated. And, that's and the only way. Yeah, and unfortunately, the system is biased in their favor. Of course. Right? And yeah. so, you know, the, the, you have to really defeat them in order in order to get a message. And he's, obviously, as Trump is a prime example, he, he loses the election, but, like, wins this electoral college victory. So, I, I, I all, this is where I think, how can this fight be taken into and this is maybe a, a place where the never trumpers can we can provide a constructive um, help to the to the coalition here is like completely giving up on a place like Ohio or mm-hmm. you know or like Iowa. in these Iowa there's the Senate it, seat yeah. up right now the Admiral uh, Franken the Admiral Franken is a great candidate great candidate and like, Chuck Grassley like, who is not and Grassley's a, below 50 in the Des Moines Register poll for like the yeah, first time I keep getting hit up by friends in Iowa and I'm like wah, wah, well the mood music is bad and inflation is high and I'm like what have I become that I'm no like I know people are, people are mad at us because they're like well, you guys left off Tim Ryan what's wrong with Tim Ryan I'm like right. you know what great no You're right right. Tim You're Ryan right. he has a fighting chance Tim Ryan's so great. And, and he raised 7 million more dollars to J.D. Vance it's going to be a tough year but I, I, I think that it, on, the Democrats might need to start thinking a little differently about this and and this isn't voters responsibility this is all y'all's old friends responsibility of like how can we win some in some of these places and 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 not just like sit around and complain about the tyranny of the minority which is which is legitimate um you know uh but but are there different types of candidates that might be able to appeal? I think Tim Ryan's run a good campaign. I'm interested in this uh, Admiral Franken's campaign in Iowa. Um, I think that there are different types of candidates. But, you know, I think that the best case scenario is, and our A block is about our good friend Joe Manchin, um, is, is, is rather than being like, F Joe Manchin to hell, like the best case scenario is probably like, nine Joe Manchins, right? Like who all have their <laughs> own horribleness that you have that's, to deal with in different ways. I'm sorry. This is, this, right this is a nightmare. This is a nightmare. No, but, but I, I know in your eyes, like nine Joe Manchins would put the Democrats in a much stronger position than zero. Well, for those who have just started paying attention when, when Trump became president, like that used to be Obama, the case. Obama's majority, when everyone's like Obama had 60 votes for yeah, three months, yeah. um, there were nine Joe Manchins. So why didn't you save the country in those yeah, three right, months, yeah, that's right. and, they were, and they were all really annoying, but they were all really annoying in all their own individual ways, <laughs> right. and we were able to cobble, yeah. trade different things together to like get some shit done. When you, ha- it's actually sometimes it's harder with one Joe Manchin than with you know with sixty, and then you have a bunch of moderates. So somehow Sean Spicer turns out to be a more pathetic individual than I thought. Um, you talk <laughs> which is about a, which is a high bar. I know, you, which, which is I think I take is really high praise <laughs> because you had to go into this thing like there's nothing you could tell me about Sean Spicer that would make me go ooh. <laughs> That's exactly what happened. I mean, you talk about how his underlings at the RNC, he made his staffers at the RNC call every campaign and get signed paraphernalia. Then he put it up on the wall and he said Lent by the courtesy of Sean Spicer. Then he tried to start a Thai business from the RNC and make staff do this. Can you please tell us more about this individual? Yeah, I can. Um, I felt like the Sean Spicer chapter was really important because (laughs) the book is is dreary. You know, I I go through and self-flagellate myself and Mm -hmm. like go through all of the things that I missed that I should have seen. And then I go through all of these really noxious Horrible characters who who use these ridiculous rationalizations for themselves, and 
and I only have one character that it even has like a glimmer of hope. So I was like, I feel like everybody needs a little comic relief. You know, it's just like halfway through the book, it's like, let's do a little Sean Spicer. Little staff. But yeah, because he is a key, This is, you have to admit, there's some Democrats like this, maybe not in the pathetic sense, but Sean Spicer fits a mold in DC. Sure. Oh yeah, super we've nerd, all known, yeah. Sure. Super nerd. Uh, he, in college, he was called Sean Sphincter. Stuff. By the school paper, <laughs> that hurts. His roommate says when people entered the room, they when he would enter the room at a party, people would kind of go, "Ugh, Spicer." <laughs> I, I read that in an old interview about Sean Spicer, like in, like from twenty years ago in the Connecticut College Magazine. This is this is the journalism I was doing. Um, I was like, that hurts. And so he gets to DC, and all of a sudden you're the RNC communications director, and Jeff Zucker's calling you, and Jake Tapper's calling you, and 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 boy, like now I'm a man about town, and I'm really kind of enjoying this little mini celebrity. He's in the mix. Right, I'm in the in mix. The mix. And mix. so I'm this like nerd, you know, I'm, I'm like a member in The Simpsons when Martin like got the pool in the summer and he's like, <laughs> I'm the king of summer. All the cool kids are coming over to my pool. It's hot out. Like this is Spicer. Uh, and so, you know, a lot of people are like, well, why would the establishment Republican guy go be Trump's first press secretary? And I was like, well, why wouldn't he have been? I, they used to call him Sean Sphincter. Now he gets to be on TV uh, and every day and, you know, all of his mom's friends are, you know, calling saying, hey, look at your boy. He done good. Right. And so um, so that is like the nature of Sean. And it was true even from the time that I worked there. And uh, I, I was I do have one little additional thing to, to share. Nice. Uh, well, it's nice. I, I, I have a postscript to the book. So this story where he, he put this little bronze plaque placard up in the RNC that said graciously donated by Sean Spicer these mementos that he made his staff work on. This was, by the way, during the 2012 campaign that all this was happening. So we had some important work that we yeah, were doing campaigning against you <laughs> yeah, guys. Yeah. But um, uh, so so he has these little placards made up, graciously donated by Sean Spicer. And um, I, di- I did find out that um, a fellow nerd revenger who was upset that Sean was getting so much attention snuck into the RNC one night oh my God. and took them down off the wall. And so that is why a question in the book was whatever happened to the graciously donated uh, uh, plaquette and and I did find out the answer uh, by a reader. Well, I think what's interesting about the Sean Spicer archetype and why it's important to understand him is that we think of him as a buffoon who was made fun of on SNL and couldn't talk that. at briefings. But his anger and frustration at his mistreatment and then his ascension manifested in being cruel to everyone around mm. him and yeah. putting the rest of us down. And I do think it's actually worrisome to have that kind of character in charge or in a powerful role, right? Because he's not hes not a, a, a hapless idiot. He's kind of a vindictive, nasty guy who's doing bad things. And this was unique to Trump's, uh, in a way, like in, in, in something that was maybe unique is the wrong word, but but particularly acute mm-hmm. in Trump's Washington. Like among the different categories yeah. of characters, you know, people who are striving, people who want to be in the room where it happened, you know, people um, uh, that like inertia drove them up, their career up. Like that That happens across, sure. you know, a lot of industries. This was the Trump thing. Is like these guys wanted revenge mm-hmm. on you guys, right? Like yeah. they want, he wanted revenge and on, on you on, and yeah, on establishment yeah, Republicans. Yeah, and on they, the they all had an Obama thing. Yeah, was yeah, a real... yeah they, they had a real deep, deep well of hatred for Obama that I didn't quite realize. Like I, I knew it was, I thought it was kind of performative. It was like, you know, we're all doing this WWE thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but they really hated Obama. Um, they hated the, the elites. They hate that the media is nicer to Democrats. They hate... Uh, you know, obviously there's a racial subtext to to all of this stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when you have these people that that – 
that gain this huge power inside Washington and you get in this bunker. Every White House has a bunker mentality, but right. this is like the deepest bunker mentality ever, right? Like all of these popular people hate us. Like we were all nerds. We were rejects. We were deplorables. We were hobbits. And so we're going to, we're going to be really, revenge. we're going to take it yeah. out on it's them. It's revenge. Yeah. And so, and, and, and I think that, the entire uh, that drove. So when Adam Serwer does like the cruelty is the point, like there was there was one group of Washington for whom cruelty is the point, like the Stephen Miller, uh, you know, your mm-hmm. actual anti-immigrant bigots. But there was another group for whom the cruelty was the point. Well, it was much more interpersonal. It was like yeah. I hate you guys who who got who get more retweets from famous people than me. And clearly, like vengeance and grievance is going to drive the entire twenty-four uh, race as well. Oh yeah, my god, so that's the whole that's going to be the whole campaign. And, and just a thought on that, like as we. For me as we conclude here i mean i think <laughs> the book is really good and it's really worth reading and it is dark at times like there's a path part at the end where you're you know trying to understand from a good friend who was such like a seemingly kind-hearted person that she traveled to iraq for 10 days to build homes for uh, lgbt kids Refugees, uh, yeah. and then worked for donald trump like the most like holding those two things in your mind is almost impossible um so it's really worth reading to sort of understand those people even if you don't come to get them, you sort of do a great job of categorizing and explaining them. But I also think it's worth reading just to talk about incentives because, you know, you became anti-Trump, you gave up your career, you dumped your party, you walked away from your business, you became anti-Trump. And then I think the net effect for you was you got uh, attacked by Republicans and then also I think often attacked by progressives for not being liberal enough or people you had worked for in the past. And I do think one of the lessons from studying fights against fascism from around the world is that the efforts that are successful are the ones where we build the broadest possible coalition to defeat the authoritarian fascist candidate. And I do think that is going to be from Bernie and the socialist left to never Trumpers on the right. And it's just something we all have to keep in. Like we should fight it out about policy and we should disagree and never put down our principles. But I do think like there is a real looming threat that we're we're all facing right now. We're not gonna be able to have the policy fight if there's no democracy. That's the, <laughs> we can all have the policy yeah. fight when, you know, when, when democracy is preserved, but right yeah. now it's sort of on the Absolutely. edge. Absolutely. And I just want to say this as being somebody who's been, and I'm not a victim here. I appreciate you said that. Tommy. I don't, but like people can be mean to me on Twitter. I can take it. Uh, but like even me, I feel this way, right? There's, there's always, you want to be the one in the door that you're like, I deserve credit. Okay. Like I, I voted for Hillary. All right. Like, you know, like I want like somebody give me a cookie, you know? <laughs> And and now like these assholes like I get this even so I sure I sure as hell get how people on the left get it right now these assholes who want to come out of the administration and like write these books you know I, sometimes I get weak on Twitter and attack them right and sometimes they deserve attack if they're, especially if they're not going to oppose Trump in 2024 that's my red line oh, still sure. but yeah, yes, yeah yes. but that, but for the ones who are trying in good faith and this is you know why the only hopeful character in the book is Alyssa Farah who who went on to be Trump's communications director. And knew he was bad when she took the job and justified it in all these myriad ways. And and I decided to write about her because I thought bad about her. And I even hate tweeted her. And she said that when I reached out to the interview. She's like, I don't know if I should do this. I saw this tweet that you sent about me about, you know, about some interview I did when I came out. But like I came to find, again, this is not a perfect person. None of us are perfect people. But this was a person that was seriously grappling with this and trying to do the right thing. And, and, you know, when there are allies in this fight who are seriously grappling with this and trying to do the right thing, but, but might have problematic either paths or opinions on certain things, like trying to figure out ways that, that to, to, to work together on this, as I do think the incentive part of this matters. And, and I, and I recognize more than anyone how hard that is, because I'm tempted sometimes to not 
uh, to you know to not be a good faith actor, not not a good faith, to not no, be a positive too. actor on that front, and we should be. Yeah. I, I sometimes think if I if I met me through my Twitter feed, I would hate myself. So oh, you know, all of us a lesson, for sure. a lesson for all of us at this table. Um, well, a lot of books written about uh, Republicans and why they did what they did, but I think that you sort of nail the psychology. Um, better than any book that I've read, and it's it's complicated. Humans are complicated, as you say, and I think you you nail that really well in the book. The book is Why We Did It: A Travelogue from the Republican Road to Hell. Everyone, go read it. Tim Miller, thank you for uh, for joining the pod. Everyone, go go buy uh, go buy the book, book Why We Did It. Thanks, gents. Thanks for being here. Pod Save America is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our senior producer is Andy Gardner Bernstein. Our producer is Haley Muse, and Olivia Martinez is our associate producer. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin and Charlotte Landis sound engineer the show. Thanks to Tanya Sominator, Sandy Gerard, Hallie Kiefer, Ari Schwartz, Andy Taft, and Justine Howe for production support. And to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Phoebe Bradford, Milo Kim, and Amelia Montooth. Our episodes are uploaded as videos at youtube.com slash crookedmedia.